Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, hello, everyone, and it is my great pleasure to be in dialogue with June Boyce Tillman, my newest, but feels like very old soul friend. So welcome, June. Welcome. Lovely to be here. So those of us that aren't perhaps familiar yet with with June's extraordinary life, I'm just going to share with you her bio. June is the Reverend Professor She's an international performer, composer, workshop leader, and keynote speaker, and an MBE. She's an emerita professor of applied music at Winchester University and an extraordinary professor at Northwest University, South Africa. I love the the use of the word extraordinary there. That's brilliant. Extraordinary professor at Northwest University, South Africa. June has published widely in the area of education and music, often on spirituality, liminality, and eudaimonia. Her doctoral research into children's musical development has been translated into five languages and supported the development of improvisatory activities in the classroom. June has written about and organized events in the area of interfaith dialogue using music, including the international improvising Peace Choir. She has held visiting fellowships at Indiana University and the Episcopal Divinity School at Massachusetts in the US. She's an international performer, especially in the work of Hildegard of Bingen, and her large-scale works for cathedrals such as Winchester, Southwark and Norwich in the UK involve professional musicians, community choirs, people with disabilities and school children. June lectures internationally and she's concerned with well-being, spirituality and radical music inclusion culturally and personally. This is why I'm just so excited to be in this dialogue with you, June. June's first book on music and spirituality was published in 2000, and it was called Constructing Musical Healing, The Wounds That Sing. I'll just say that again, Constructing Musical Healing, The Wounds That Sing. That's a very, very key theme in our conversation today, I would say. 
June is currently editing the series on music and spirituality for Peter Lang, which includes her book, Experiencing Music, Restoring the Spiritual, Music as Well-Being. The edited collection, Queering Freedom, Music, Identity and Spirituality, Perspectives from 10 Countries, and her autobiography, Freedom Song, such a great title for you, June, it's utterly perfect. Freedom Song, Faith, Abuse, Music and Spirituality, a lived experience. Well, everybody should definitely be buying that book. June founded the Music, Spirituality and Wellbeing, an international network sharing expertise and experience in this area. And the website for that is mswinternational.org. June is a hymn writer with a collection published by Stainer and Bell of inclusive language and ecological hymns, and it's called A Rainbow to Heaven. These are used internationally, and June is an Anglican priest serving All Saints Church in Tooting, having also served in Winchester Cathedral. So June, this is just such an incredible story that you have walked and lived and embodied for, I think it's about seven decades. You're seven decades young, I would say. So welcome to, into this dialogue together. Lovely to be with you, and I'm very honoured to be interviewed by you. You're, I've admired your work a great deal. So this is a great oh, privilege for me. Well, at last, I just cannot believe it's it's not until now that we've actually directly met, but we can accelerate the journey. I know we will together. So your themes, the themes that have uh, motivated your life of music and spirituality and well-being, of embracing the social, the personal, the spiritual, the political aspects of well-being, these all really speak to the nature of this dialogue together today, which is on the whole theme of compassion. And I just love to ask friends in this conversation what your understanding of compassion is. And I'm really interested to know how it has catalyzed your life's work, really, and, and who in your life, perhaps in the earlier parts of your life, were instrumental in inspiring your unique journey. I've spent a long time thinking about compassion, really. I mean, obviously, it comes from the Latin to suffer with. And I think it is both beautiful and dangerous. Mm. Um, because I think that sometimes, particularly for women, particularly in relationship, mm. it's meant that there hasn't been enough of a boundary between the person that you're close to and the compassion that you're feeling with the result that you've been overwhelmed by the very things that are overwhelming the people close to you. Mm -hmm. so I prefer, I think, suffering alongside, mm -hmm. understanding and also being able to relate an experience that you're encountering someone else with an experience that you've had. The notion of how lived experience plays out gives us a curious reason perhaps a rather dubious reason for suffering, that actually uh, the greater the suffering that you've experienced yourself in your own lived experience, the mm. greater the range that you can understand of people around you. So mm -hmm. it somehow or other gives suffering a purpose mm. and so on. And I think 
as I was thinking about this before uh, this wonderful dialogue, uh, the word love, I think, and where does love and compassion uh, sit together? And I did write a hymn about love, identifying different forms of love. So the first one is we sing a love that sets all people free and it blows in the wind and it burns like scorching flame and so on. So if you ask me where I experienced compassion initially as an only child born in the war, it was primary from the natural world. Mm. You know, it was the wind, it was the trees, it was the flowers. And I spent a lot of time alone in the garden. And in many ways, they were my only friend, along with a succession of cats who I was very close to. The compassion of the environment. The second verse is, we sing a love that seeks another's good, which is often how love is conceived, drawing on St. Paul, that longs to serve and not to count the cost. A love that yielding finds itself made new. And that's often what's seen as the best love. But the third verse is, we sing a love unflinching, unafraid to be itself, despite another's wrath. A love that stands alone and undismayed, comes strengthening love. And I think sometimes it's this tension between a love that yields mm. and does suffer with, I prefer alongside, but mm. the other sort of compassion that where you stand your ground and in many ways provide a strength for someone. When mm. I was in Gugoletu in South Africa, I went to a very large service for the people there, mm. huge congregation, a thousand people. And a woman came through uh, up for healing. This was a service where there was the laying on of hands. And the woman next to me said she's lost her husband. Mm. And all the people in the in the church started to clap and stamp. And I said, but she's sad. Ah, said the woman next to me, when you're sad, you don't need weakness. You need strength. Oh, and I love I that. thought that. Often what we do here is weep alongside when, in fact, what the person needs is our strength. Yes. And yes. then the last verse of the hymn, we sing a burning, fiery Holy Ghost that seeks out shades of ancient bitterness, transfiguring these as Christ in every heart. The notion that as we're offering compassion, we need to be aware of our own background and, and all the things in our own past, which may be getting in the way or helping us. So there needs to be an awareness because often relationships break down, not from the things we know about ourselves, but from the things we don't know about ourselves. Mm. So uh -huh. that was my hymn about love. And I think it probably in compassion, I can remember interestingly a surgeon when we were talking about empathy in a discussion about healthcare. And the surgeon said, well, I can't have any empathy with my clients. Otherwise, oh. I wouldn't cut into them. Oh, <laughs> so, you know, I think it's a really, it's a whole, it's an extraordinary, yeah. complex word yes. that sometimes gets hijacked for all sorts of purposes, really. And who's given me a notion of it? Well, the natural world. And Jesus, I guess, for me, I was brought up a Christian the stories of compassion there. My friend who's just died, Ianthi Pratt, who ran the Association for Inclusive Language and fought for the ordination of women. But she published my first song, We Shall Go Out with Hope of Resurrection. Mm -hmm. And that was true compassion. I was simply a young primary school teacher in a South London school. And she had faith in me. And that really was compassion. Wow. There have been a number of priests 
who have shown me compassion, although the story of the Anglican priesthood and compassion is not great. But I have found people like James Atwell at Winchester Cathedral, um, mm. who I owe a great deal to. And then I think Hildegard of Bingen, um, because I discovered someone with that compassion for the natural world and seeing herself as part of it. And also John Taverner, who saw the purpose of music as healing the world, which I would say too, and healing in every sense, personally, culturally, and cosmically. Mm -hmm. I've had visions of angels since I was little, so the angels have always offered me a great deal of compassion and so on. And of course, I've had, as only children do, a number of imaginary friends and so on. So I think that those people have taught me about compassion, but I think as a as an only and rather lonely child, God has always been there and God mm. has always offered me compassion. Mm. Um, and I suppose one of the chants that I suppose summarizes it is, I will hold you in the hollow, in the hollow of my hand. I will hold you in the hollow of my hand. I will hold you in the hollow, in the hollow of my hand. I will hold you in the hollow of my hand. And that's, I think, what God has done for my life, really. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, how such a rich and diverse impact of all these influences in your life. And then to hear you sing that, what happens to us when we hear the sound of compassion? when it's actually literally sung like that, and you have a huge repertoire of, of songs of this nature. Did you start creating songs from a very young age of this nature, or when did that all start? When did I start composing songs? I composed piano pieces, I think, before I composed songs. Oh. I have, I have a, a piece still in yes. my nine or 10 year old handwriting, which yes. is called The Silent Lake, which consists oh. really of arpeggios at various levels on the piano I'm still quite proud of it I didn't even have any manuscript paper so I had to rule five lines on a piece of paper to write it down oh that's so <laughs> sweet and were your parents obviously that you say they brought you up in a Christian environment what kind of influence might they have had in your own journey well I think my relationships with my parents are extremely complex mm. and when I was reviewing the questions mm. um, was I going to include them as compassion mm. and and I still I think I can now mm. but it has taken me a very long time mm. my father was a very shy man mm. and I always often think my father looked at the world and decided not to join um, yes and but he was loving a distant yes. loving figure he mm. was the son of my grandfather who played the piano who was the great musical influence in my life, really. Oh. and was determined that I would play better than him. He played for the village hop. So his repertoire was the lancers, the quadrilles and the valita, and the military two steps. He wanted me <laughs> to play Chopin. Um, he had one 78 of Josie I. Turby playing um, the Chopin fantasy impromptu and wanted me to end up like that. I spent my rest of my life trying to be like my grandfather rather than what he wanted me to be. But that's another story. My mother was an extraordinarily complex figure who did her best, mm. I think, and I think represented a, a form of womanhood that was tricky, immensely powerful, mm. immense energy, 
mm. but unable to have a career mm-hmm. um, because women didn't and therefore expended a lot of that energy on me in a way. I mean, one of my choices in my life was that I would in the end conduct large groups of people as indeed I have, because mm. you need that sort of energy for that. But when it's channeled on a single person, it's actually quite tricky to handle. And I think her sadness probably was that she was very ambitious for me for the things that she might not have done herself. But in a sense, that then separated me from her. It took me to Oxford and then to London. And she would really have preferred to have had a daughter who lived down the road and came to tea every day. So um, she sang. But the repertoire I was brought up on song-wise were really hymns in church. And I can still sing a lot of ancient and modern from memory. But also, and I'm just doing some research on it now, what was called the bourgeois ballad or the drawing room ballad, the lost chord the Holy City, Arise, O Sun, and then leading on to things like, if I can help somebody as I pass this way, my living will not be in vain. And we sang them around the piano on a Saturday night when we went to tea with my grandparents. Oh, brilliant. So there was compassion there in the family. And now I know that both of them did the best they could. Mm. Um, But it's taken some time to get to that point. Mm. It is. It's such a mystery, isn't it? So often, you know, these really challenging childhoods that it seems like just about everybody has had in one form or another, that, you know, if you look at them through a sort of psychotherapeutic lens, then, you know, there's a whole kind of process that one goes through, a very essential process that one can go through. But then if you actually look at look at it through the lens of radical awakening or something like that you you, you realize that without all the kind of the pitfalls the obstructions and the challenges and the the grist and the grit of of one's childhood that you probably wouldn't be who you are today and it's a sort of paradox isn't it that as you were saying earlier that suffering actually has this kind of lightness of being that filtering through it the whole time that you know that actually invites us to awaken through the challenge to awaken through the apparent difficulties. Yes. I mean, for me, I mean, the ultimate mystery, I think, of life and all the religions deal with it Mm. is why suffering. They Mm -hmm. all all of them ask the same question. They come up with different answers Mm. and different narratives around it. Mm -hmm. But I think it is the fundamental. It's the fundamental reason for the religious search or the spiritual search Mm. is why suffering Mm-hmm. And in the end, of course, there is no answer except this sort of area that we're talking about now, that mm-hmm. it, it it widens one's perspective on life. You commented on the title of my book, The Wounds That Sing. Mm. It also generates an immense amount of art. Mm. So well, if there were less suffering, we would have less art. Yes. Seems to me. So, and so on. Yeah. So, um, and it is from the wounds that we sing. And I didn't really ask answer your question about my own songs and when I started composing those. And I suppose that was really coming to London and working in Notting Hill just post the race riots. And then that was the area of the of the sort of folk in worship. Sidney Carter and all of that were coming up. And the also the Walkman and the, and the small cassette recorder which meant that people could simply sing songs into, you didn't have to grasp notation at all. Right. You could simply record it. And I started to do that, although the 
the one song very interestingly that I wrote when I arrived at university and was performed in Oxford was paradoxically called Silence. So, oh, brilliant. <laughs> it was a well, setting of a wonderful Thomas Hood poem called There is a Silence Where Has Been No Sound in the Depths of the Ocean and so on. But it says, and but where human beings have been, they're the true silences and so on. But I mean, Oxford really taught me that I couldn't compose because, of course, there were no women in the curriculum. There were only three women studying music and 36 men in my year. So it, the gender basis of Oxford was tricky. There were no women teaching and no women in the curriculum. Wow. So it, it took coming to London and finding figures like Joan Byers, um, mm. all of those, those women folk singers mm. to start. And that's what that was the style I composed in initially, and then went to hymnody, starting to work with Celtic texts and turn those into into strophic songs, and then eventually composing many more songs of my own. But it took a long time because I think my generation of women were heavily influenced by the classical canon, and that women did women don't do it, yeah. men do it. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? But that in itself is enough with your spirit and personality and being to to really sort of <laughs> arouse the opposite and to arouse, you know, a new way of being and a response to that that literally has to speak up and speak out and sing out. You know, I think I experienced it most clearly when I first did write the, one of the big pieces, the pieces that I wrote with Radical Musical Inclusion, and they were commissions from the Southern Symphonia and so I was going to get a professional orchestra, but I was also involving children and community choirs and, and so on. Mm-hmm. But the first time I rehearsed the orchestra, the notion of being a woman conducting a professional orchestra, I conducted school orchestras before, but the legacy of that very gendered position, I was terrified out of my mind. Mm. Fortunately, the leader was very compassionate and helped me through it. And in the end, it was wonderful. And I loved conducting the orchestra um, and the power of it and so on. But the legacy of the gendered world into which I was initiating classical music, and really it was the folk world that showed me women, and then, of course, Hildegard of Bingen. And I was in my 40s when I encountered Hildegard. How did that happen? Yes. Well, I was working for women's ordination and my friend Nicholas Slee had a service in Southwark as part of the ordination course when the Anglican church couldn't make its mind up. Mm -hmm. And a woman was going to tell the story of Hildegard and she couldn't sing. So I I found Hildegard then and I sang Ovidism of as I have many times since then. And so the journey began and in the end led to the book on her called The Creative Spirit, Harmonious Living with Hildegard of Bingen. And of course, the truth of Hildegard is she's not the first woman composer of Europe, but the first European composer at all with a large body of work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She simply wasn't there in the curriculum. No, it's extraordinary, isn't it? There, there's a beautiful book, like a novel of her life by Margaret Sharat. I don't know whether you've come across that, called Illuminations, which is, I mean, I, it's spellbinding. I couldn't put it down. as if she was really sort of channeling the, the, you know, the personality and, and, and this extraordinary life of this medieval woman, you know, who literally was locked up as an anchorite till she was in her 40s, I think, too, right? 
she was oblated to the Abbey as a child. Right. Because she was the 10th child. She's also a visionary. And yes. I guess her parents were quite glad to, they thought the convent might well, well, it was a monastery she was oblated to first. With yes. Her, thought that they might manage a visionary better than they were merchants, a merchant family. Yes. Um, and she then, she's oblated to the side of the Abbey, but mm. would have gone to the Abbey um, and with Jutta, and yeah. then, of course, breaks away, as you rightly say. She wanted to expand and she was becoming, you know, she wanted more people and the abbot wouldn't give her more yeah. space. So then she upped and left with some of her community and went to Bingen itself and formed yeah. a convent on the Rupertsburg there. A remarkable courage. Yeah. I mean, just and I felt her very close to me. I used to stay quite a lot at the Abtei St. Hildegard there and she was always on my shoulder there and I felt her alongside me all the time, really. And that's when I decided to give birth to the one-woman shows that I, well, still do, actually, because people ask me to talk about her. And I still remember her sitting on my shoulder and saying, don't talk about me, June, be me. And that's where I used Jean Moore's story, the the one that was told in Southwark, and I told it myself. I became her, really. Yeah, I still feel I did become her. She is a very, very powerful figure. Barbara Thornton, who did all the recordings, always said it was difficult to disentangle your life from hers. She was even, you know, in whatever form she is now. Um, she's a very commanding figure. Yes, yes. I mean, she really is a, a voice for our time, isn't she? And thanks to you that that is being brought through. I'm just, as you're describing your life, I'm hearing so many parallels because I made some versions of, of Viridissima Virga as well and some other ones. I wrote an opera on her, a one-woman opera. Goodness. Um, Goodness. Which, which was her life, really. So um, is, is it possible for us to um, gain access to these? Yes, it's rec- the, the opera is recorded. So I have got a recording of the opera. And it was done in Salisbury Cathedral several times. Yes. Um, and so it's only three quarters of an hour long. But yes. it did look at her life. Yes. So it only requires one woman in piano, so it's relatively easy to stage. <laughs> and you spoke of John Tavner as well. That's another connection we both share. But I, yours was very strong, your connection with him. I met him originally in Canterbury, and mm. he by then had, was just discovering Hildegard. When he discovered that I knew about Hildegard, our meeting was really over Hildegard. And then I'm a priest and a theologian as well as a musician, and he wanted to talk about the relationship between music, spirituality, theology. So sometimes when I'd go to his house, he'd be there with a piece of Hindu sacred scripture, which he'd be wor- working on, and he'd say something like, do you, do, you think, do you think this is the Holy Spirit, or do you think it's different? So we would have these wonderful interfaith dialogues on it, and he would show me what he was working on at the time, and, and so on. So, and he encouraged me. I mean, there was a compassion. Yes. Um, I mean, I was nothing like, had nothing like this, his standing. And I, was, I suppose I was surprised at someone of his standing. But we, in the end, uh, would, would, would have these conversations. But it was wonderful. And I'm still in touch with Mariana. And we did a festival of his, of his works as part of a big festival. And I did an interview with him. And we turned out the book on Taverner. And yes. that's in, in the series, Heart's Ease. And he says, you know, that's what music is. It's there for heart's ease. And I believe that too. It's for heart's ease. Goodness. We must have both been at his funeral too in Winchester Cathedral. I was, and that was a bizarre experience. You would have seen me there. Yeah. Because I helped to organise that. It had to be a Greek Orthodox funeral. 
Yeah. And it had to be when the when the archbishops were free. And also, of course, he died just before Christmas in which the cathedral is much in use approaching Christmas. But fortunately, James Atwell and I managed to find a date when the archbishops were free. And yeah. then Mariana said John would hate to have a funeral with no woman there. Yeah. Now, women are not exactly part of the thinking on the priesthood of the Orthodox Church. So I did robe and I was in the procession, but... The priest made absolutely clear that I would do nothing. So you had this bizarre <laughs> spectacle of a woman priest. Brilliant. Thank God you were there. Because <laughs> he was absolutely at the feet of the sacred feminine, wasn't he, John? And oh, he was. And on the he wrote at the back of my hymn book, in the times that we live, we are experiencing what the Hindus call the Kali Yuga or Dark Age where religious art and life are reaching their lowest ebb. It is therefore surprising that June Boyce Tillman's book of hymns and chants should emerge from such darkness. Here are hymns and songs that are direct and simple, but also dig deep into tradition. And this is the bit I really like. They are like a beautiful woman with the white hair of wisdom and the face of a young girl. Beautiful, beautiful. I mean, you're clearly such allies in the spirit with this uh, attention to very, very respectful, sincere, respectful relationship with the orthodoxy or with the traditional Christian church. But at the same time, both of you being so radical and, and so alive in your own totally unique expression of Christianity and through music, of course. Well, it's a difficult path to tread. Yeah. I learned. Uh, eventually I did find, and that was difficult, any Anglican choir as a child. I longed to sing as a child yeah. in the church choir. <clears throat> and indeed, I was chosen to sing, Oh Jesus, I have promised to sing it in the church hall, but not allowed to sing it in church. I did find a choir in my teens, which was in Southampton, St. Mary's. Yeah. Um, and I do know the Anglican repertoire, uh, um, Wormsley and D minor and Stanford in C and so on. And I still have a great respect for it. And I'm still sad. That in fact, although girls have been allowed into the tradition, that there are not more choirs using girls and women and yeah. so on. It's increasing, but it's not good. Yeah. Um, and then alongside that, you've got the developments in the new age with, you know, the singing bowls that I have, the set of crystal bowls. I learned shamanic drumming and that healed me from quite serious mental illness, really. I was cured by a neo-shaman and so learnt shamanic drumming and all of that. And I'm now working with a machine called the sound of the plants, which you link into the plant leaves and you hear um, it's turned into, into music. And yeah. we sp I spent two days ago, I was with my two friends, Meta Killick, who plays the harp, and Alistair, who plays the uh, guitar, and we were improvising with a yew tree and with the rock plants and so on. And now, where does that fit with um, Stanford in B-flat? Um, and how do you bridge those almost conflicting traditions, both spiritually and in terms of, of the music that they embrace and that they love? Yes. And that, I think, is I try and live with paradox. Yes. But they are, are on two different aesthetics, really. One is accuracy. I often describe the relationship as between the tension between accuracy and uplift. And we know that to get accuracy, the classical tradition has often been quite cruel. Mm. 
and has has denied the uplift in in the pursuit of the right note and so on. And everybody has stories from from school or associated board exams and all of those mm -hmm. in that area. Mm -hmm. But I think it's still possible to to bring them together, and I have tried to bring them together, but it's hard. Yes, it's really hard. Goodness, but absolutely essential and. It really has to be done, doesn't it? It's what I suppose this time is. There's such a collapsing of dimensions now, isn't there? Obviously, our mutual friend Jude Caravan is very instrumental with her cosmic hologram and and now her forthcoming book on the Gaia, her story. And Jude is someone who is like you is bridging the worlds across from new science and quantum science into mystical religion, mystical spirituality, inspired by the Christian faith and all the other faiths. I think it's a very tricky one. I mean, I've been involved in multi-faith dialogue. I did the first multi-faith sort of sharing in 1986 at a mm. neighbourhood festival in London mm. um, and so on. And I've been involved in that dialogue a great deal. One of the books that I read and all the work on inclusive language, it was a book called Jesus and the Goddess, the next bit of interfaith dialogue, because in a sense... Those who will do it are doing it with the great faiths, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism. Mm. And there are some people who will never do it, whatever. Mm. Uh, but the next dialogue is into Jesus and the goddess mm. and how that all plays out. And there's been a lot of resistance in the church uh, to mm. inclusive language. I mean, we've been working in this area since the 1970s. And yet in some contexts, if you call God mother, I mean, all mm. sorts of things pour down on you. My fear, I think, in a lot of the New Age so-called traditions is that other stories are there. So the Buddha tends to be there and Sufi texts tend to be there and the Kabbalah in particular from Judaism. But I'm worried that the story of Jesus is not mm. because of how the, the Christian church has mangled it in various ways. Mm. I think that's a really, really, really important area yes. that... I often liken the, the, the main faiths to, to metalled roads, and you know where you are on them, you know the road signs. But over on the other side of the road, there is a forest growing mm. of, of a mixture of all sorts of spiritual traditions from here, there and everywhere. You know, ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, mindfulness, they're all there. Yes. Um, but I would be sorry if in that mixture the story of Jesus is not there. Yeah, well, that is that is a huge theme that probably really requires a whole other virtue dialogue, I would imagine. So I, I would love to invite you to consider that. <laughs> but it is, it's, it's, it's terribly important what you're calling forth here, and particularly in the name of compassion and the Christ, and the cosmic Christ. Well, I think there's an interesting drawing that Richard Raw has, has sort of adapted from somebody else. Mm. And he has a sort of cosmic egg, which is a lovely, and of course, one of Hildegard's, isn't it? Is an egg, mm. the famous one is the egg. At the bottom, there's a little circle, which is my story. And nobody has my story except me. Mm. And then there's a much bigger circle, which is our story. Mm. And that can be you know, the Anglican Church or riding a Harley Davidson or supporting Manchester City. All of those things are our story. They're groups of people that we belong to or don't belong to. Mm. But beyond mm. all of that is the story mm. where all those stories fit. And mm. the real problem, whether it's in music or in theology or indeed, uh, you know, football supporting, the real problem is when you claim 
our story to be the story. Mm. <laughs> because mm. in the story, which we should never fully understand, yeah. in the story, they all fit together in a way that we can't imagine how it works. And that's why I think we have the compassion is about tolerating paradox. Love that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I mean, what I sense is that your your life and your work to date and ongoing is really about really heralding what the Aboriginal world talks about, sounding a new world into being. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So how, for example, would I use the, the machine for the sound of the plants right. in a piece that involves a, a professional orchestra and children with learning difficulties. Um, I mean, the church traditionally has been very exclusive. It's been exclusive in terms of race, class, gender, sexuality, you name it, it's been exclusive. But Mm -hmm. I think we can create a new church through music. That's why I did the pieces in which the cathedral, that no one is excluded. And your job as the leader, the composer, the conductor, is to make sure that there's a place for everyone. So you change the notion of what a composer is. It's not somebody who sits down, so this is what I've written. If you can do it, you're in. And if you can't, you're out. Yes. My system is if they if you've written something and you say, can you do it? They say no. I say, well, you know, what could you do? Or have you got something else you could bring? So the composer becomes not someone who puts their handprint on a group of people, hmm. but the, is a weaver. So composing is weaving. And Mm. I think weaving is the best image of God. Mm. You know, the the cosmos is woven and we keep making holes in it. And I can still say, when I was talking with Rowan Williams, he said, there's a hole in it. And Rowan said, yeah, I think sometimes God says, whoops. Um, (laughs) and, And so God is continually trying to make the holes, you know, put them back together again. And as musicians, we can have that model. Yeah. of creating a truly inclusive group of people in which no one is excluded at all. So I think that's my dream, and that's why I did the pieces which included you know, professional musicians, community choirs, children, people with learning difficulties, people with Down syndrome, and one must use one's expertise to weave well, your your music for well-being and so on, your international organisation is definitely something that everybody must must really tune in with much more deeply and follow and listen to. And I'm right on board with you uh, with this, uh, you know. And so let's let's really dynamically respond to this evolving tapestry of of the spirit, really, isn't it? You well, know? I think it's an interesting one to go back. I mean, during the COVID, when mm. we couldn't go out, I reconstructed the multi-faith work called Space for Peace that I'd done in Winchester Cathedral. We did it all across the world. And sometimes there were 50 people from four continents improvising together. The most oh. moving one was when we had Palestinian and Jewish Israelis alongside a group of students in Winchester, all improvising together for peace. Okay. So I think, you know, I think the notion of improvising together One of the stories that has coloured my thinking is the one that gave the title of that first book, The Wounds That Sing. And it's a story of a ruler who has a fine diamond. The diamond is dropped and it gets broken. And the ruler takes it around all the jewellers and the jewellers say, it's no good, it's broken, there's nothing we can do. And then in the far-flung reaches 
of the territory, he finds someone who says, I can make it more beautiful than it was before. And in the place of the crack, uh, the engraver carves the most beautiful rose. And the place of the wounding is the place of the greatest beauty. And so it is from the cracks in our lives and in the lives of, of the cosmos that we sing. So that was the wounds that sing. And so that. the place of the suffering can be the place of the greatest beauty. That's utterly beautiful. What a place for us to just complete this dialogue for now. But let's let's continue this. And I, I know that anyone listening will be wanting to do the same. It's such an inspiring dialogue with you. Dearest June, thank you so much for this opportunity to share a Voce dialogue with you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity and for getting to know you better as well. Thank you so much. It's a great, great privilege. So every blessing and thank you so much. To be continued. (laughs) 